You're listening to a sermon from New Harvest Church in Salem, Oregon. We believe that you were created for connection to Christ and a community of his followers. This sermon is an extension of our desire to become more like Christ by engaging God's word within our weekly gatherings. If you are in the area, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday. You can learn more about New Harvest and our ministries at newharvestch.org. Well, good morning, everyone. Thanks to those of you that are here in the room, welcome. And to those of you at home, thanks for being with us as well. My name's Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to welcome you into our family, church family we call New Harvest. A couple things uh, to let you know about before we jump into our text for today. The first is, uh, you might remember last Sunday we prayed for my dad, who is Pastor Barry, the senior pastor here, for his knee surgery on Monday. And I'm glad to report everything went well. And I saw him last night, and he was walking around a little and starting to get some mobility back. And everything, as far as the physical therapists have told him, is on schedule. So he's doing well. Thank you for your prayers. You can obviously continue to pray for him. But he's not here. He's watching with all of you at home online on YouTube or something. I don't even know if he knows how to use YouTube, so <laughs> could be a little interesting, but uh, as he told me he was going to join online, so I'm pretty sure he figured that out. Two more things to let you know about. Uh, one is, if you turn around and you look back, way back in the corner there, there's three people all in the tech booth. You can wave and say hi. They're real people. That's Michael and Trevin and Connie, and there are really what I would call tech support to make everything happen that you see from your living room or from your seats and are able to join in. And we need more people to help support what we do, whether it's running media on the computer or helping run the live stream or run sound. Those are the three spots that we uh, almost every week need to fill. And so if you have an interest in that, come talk to me, come talk to Celeste, write it on a connection card, which, by the way, is in the seat in front of you, Fill that out. Give it to the ushers on the way out. I'll be in touch with you. But if you'd like to help, it really takes more people to make Sundays happen in the various ways we do it online and here in person. And we'd love to have your help. And then the last thing is trunk or treat next Sunday. Hopefully the weather outside will be a little better than today, right? Nobody's going to (laughs) come. We, we would love to have your help, and it looks like the forecast for the extended forecast next Sunday looks okay at this point. Uh, whether you want to bring a trunk or you'd like to just donate candy, we would love to have you be involved. And so those are kind of the two main ways, or you can just show up with your kids or grandkids. That's great, too. Uh, but uh, we'd love to have you be involved and to help with that. And so donate a trunk. Uh, You can sign up on the clipboard in the lobby and let us know you'd like to be a part of that. Or just bring your candy to the church today, next Sunday, during the week, whenever. We'll take your candy. That would be great. All right, time to jump in. I was recently having coffee with somebody uh, downtown Salem, and uh, we were kind of getting to know each other. I was hearing about a ministry that they're hoping to start, and they asked me a question that I get asked by a lot of people. How did you become a pastor? Like, what led to that? And the backstory to this, a lot of you know, and some of you don't. So I thought I'd share the very brief version of it. My dad, as I already shared, has been a pastor 
my whole life. And so I've been asked the question, are you going to become a pastor when you grow up? All throughout my childhood. And my answer every single time was, no way. I, I wanted no part of that life. I would always tell people, no, I'm going to make money. I want to drive nice cars and have a big house and have a lavish lifestyle and go on nice vacations instead of camping, which is what we always did as kids. We never, you know, went to extravagant places. So I wanted no part of that life, and so I got a a college degree in business finance and was headed into uh, financial planning and that sort of business. And so uh, the advice I was given was to get a sales job after college. So after graduating, I got a sales job at a fast-growing company in Portland. And kind of what I stepped into was the expectation of you you needed to work 60-plus hours a week. And so you had to get there no later than 7, so I usually show up about 6.45. We had like two or three hours of trainings and meetings going over our goals and how to achieve them. And then we went out, and my sales territory was from Airport Way by the airport up in Portland all the way to the far east end of town, Troutdale. And so that whole area was kind of the area I canvassed, literally walking in a suit and tie, believe it or not, every day. Uh, handing out business cards and showing up at businesses and handing them my card. And so the job is great, awesome, amazing. If you love getting ignored, getting told to leave, and getting blown off, like you're just totally irrelevant. So I hated it. I hated the job. But my boss has told me, hey, look, everybody hates the job. Everybody hates this. And then you start making money and you get to taste the lifestyle and it's all worth it. It's all worth it. That was the message I was given, is that I could have the lavish things that I really desired. All I needed to do was work hard, and I had it within me. It was really a message of self-empowerment, that I could create my future by pursuing it with all that I have. And that's really a message that I think rings true for a lot of people. I read a recent study that said 90% of Americans believe believe this statement. The best way to find yourself is by looking within yourself. In other words, if you want to discover who you really are, look within you and find out what is it that you really deeply desire and then go pursue that. That is how you find life. The problem was I was doing that in the sales job that I had after college and I felt more and more empty. Like life was meaningless. Is this really all there is for me? And so then I I looked around at the other people I was working with that had supposedly succeeded at doing this. And the reality was they were miserable. A bunch of them were divorced. The ones who weren't married were having a hard time keeping up relationships. Everything was falling apart. And so they loved to work 60 hours a week because that was really all there was for their life. Everything else was kind of miserable. And so it was a good way to stay away from their house and their family was to be at work. And so I was kind of looking around and thinking, boy, if this is all I wanted... And that this was the purpose of my life. All of it's like not really ringing true to what I think actually I want. It's got to be something different than this. And so at the same time, Rose and I had recently been married. And we were visiting churches in the area that we lived. And I, I can remember three Sundays in a row. Three Sundays in a row. The same message, essentially, from three different pastors at three different churches. Three messages all on money. And so I'm like, after the third one, I'm finally like, okay, God, I get it. You're trying to say something to me. I'll listen. My life pursuit around money and lavish things was beginning to crumble. 
through the messages. And I can remember the third one, Randy Remington at Beaverton Foursquare Church up in Beaverton gave that message. And I just remember it kind of sinking in like, okay, I'm going in the wrong direction. What does it look like to move forward differently? And so eventually I felt I prayed about it, obviously, and spent time in conversation with friends and family and uh, just felt like God was leading me to be like one of those pastors that had that deep impact on me that really changed the trajectory of my life and where I was focused. I wanted to become like one of them. And now 15 years later, here I am, which is really a testament to God's grace, nothing of me. And so what I think we see through some of the story that I just shared is that we have, I think, as humans, a desire to create some sort of meaning out of our lives. And what we do to find that is we look within ourselves. What is it that we desire? And so we want the freedom to be fully who we were, feel like we were created to be. But the problem is we come up empty when we look inside. Because why? The weight of the responsibility to create meaning on our own for ourselves is too much to bear. And I love how uh, James Baldwin, who's an African-American writer, uh, he says about freedom, he says, I have met only a very few people who had any real desire to be free. Freedom is hard to bear. The weight of responsibility to create something for ourselves is a weight that is very heavy. And so we might think the purpose and meaning of our lives is found in becoming who we are. And so then anything that kind of impedes on that has to be rejected, has to be cast aside. We want what one Harvard professor called the unencumbered life. Break off the shackles. Anything that kind of binds us and constricts us, break it off. We want an unencumbered life. But I think what many are discovering is that this unencumbered life actually makes us feel empty and meaningless. Like, this is all there is? This is all there is? And I think that really, more than anything, encapsulates what we've been looking at in Daniel through the eyes of King Nebuchadnezzar, the emptiness he feels and the desire for something greater that's been presented to him over and over. And so you might remember a few weeks ago, we looked at Daniel 2, and Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about a statue. And Daniel tells him, like, you are partly the statue, and you're going to be destroyed, and God's reign is eternal. And so turn to the Lord. And we think like, oh, Nebuchadnezzar says some nice things at the end of the story. And we think like, oh, he gets it. And then by the next chapter, Daniel 3, he's creating the statue to look just like himself. It's 90 feet tall. It's this enormous thing. And it's like, wait a second. You just said you were acknowledging God. Now Daniel 3 comes and it's like, no, you don't quite get it yet, do you? And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't bow before your statue. And you're so furious that you decide you're going to kill him. And so you throw him into the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar, again, at the end of chapter 3, here's what he says, Daniel 3.28. Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. And so again, end of Daniel 3, we think Nebuchadnezzar's finally getting it. He's turning to God. He's going to turn his life around. And then we get to Daniel 4, and it all falls apart again, (laughs) which is essentially what we're going to look at the next two weeks. Will King Nebuchadnezzar finally understand that the God of the Israelites is the Lord of all? That is the question that we come to with 
Daniel 4. And so if you could turn there, you have your Bible, turn to Daniel 4. We're going to look at 27 verses this morning. So it's going to take a few minutes for us to jump through. And then next Sunday, we're going to finish the chapter as well. And I'm going to kind of jump in here at several points just to kind of explain a few things so that what we're looking at can be understood, hopefully. So Daniel 4 starts with this. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. Now let's stop right there and just establish what's happening. Now, it's generally embraced that the book of Daniel is written by Daniel. And one of the ways we kind of understand this is Daniel has been given the Babylonian name Belteshazzar. And all throughout the book of Daniel, Daniel refers to himself as Daniel, not Belteshazzar. And that's one of the ways that we think, yes, this has to be Daniel who wrote this because he refers to himself by his original Hebrew name. But not so in Daniel 4. Daniel's referred to as Belteshazzar over and over throughout Daniel 4. Why is that? Well, that's because Nebuchadnezzar wrote Daniel chapter 4. You can see it right at the beginning. King Nebuchadnezzar to the nations. This is really his letter or his announcement to anybody. It's really his testimony. What is the purpose of this chapter? He says, to tell about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. He wants to tell his testimony about his turning to the Lord. And it's really incredible that as we begin Daniel 4, our understanding is Nebuchadnezzar has no belief in God. And so Daniel 4 is the only chapter in all of the Bible written by somebody who is not a believer. Really incredible. But as we'll see throughout the chapter, I think it'll make sense as to why this is in the story. Okay, continuing on, verse 3. How great are his signs, speaking of the Lord. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. And in verse 4 here, some translations have him saying, I was at home at ease in my palace. And the picture we're given is that he's comfortable. Life is Good, And it it's fits, I think, that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't want to change. And quite often in our lives as well, when things are comfortable, when they're easy, we just kind of sit back and say, this is good. I don't need to do anything different. But when hardship comes, when difficulty comes, then we're really willing and accepting of the idea of doing something differently. And that's what we see in verse 5, because he says, I had a dream that made me afraid. I was, as I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. Now he's going to be willing to change because he is terrified. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Now when I first read this, verses 6 and 7, I thought, boy, does Nebuchadnezzar have some sort of like short-term memory loss? Does he not remember in Daniel 2, he had a dream and he asked them to interpret it for him and they could not do it. 
They couldn't do it. And so he's kind of seen the fallacy of the whole thing. And now here in Daniel 4, he has a dream. And again, he wants them to interpret it, something they've already proven that they have an inability to do very well. Short-term memory loss is the first thing that came to my mind. But then as I studied Daniel 4 a little bit more in depth, most scholars believe that Daniel 4 is written 25 or 30 years after Daniel 2 and 3. Now, this is a lot of based on the context of what happens in the story and what happens after. We believe this is toward the end of King Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And so it's not that he has short-term memory loss because that was 30 years ago that he asked those guys to interpret the dream that they couldn't interpret. That's 30 years ago. It's not short-term memory loss. It's that he really has no stable foundation in his life. And so he'll, he'll, he'll ask anybody to help him figure out a dream when it terrifies him. He needs somebody to figure it out, and he doesn't know where to look, and so he asks them to help. Okay, continuing on, verse 8. Finally, finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar, after the name of my God. The spirit of the holy gods is in him. And it's interesting that at first, when he calls the magicians and the astrologers and all these people, Daniel is not present Now, we'll find out in verse 9, Daniel's title is Chief of the Magicians. All the magicians are present, but not Daniel. Now, the Bible doesn't really tell us why this is, but I kind of like want to believe that it was God's like subtle way of allowing all of these other people who think they have a lot of knowledge to stumble over themselves. Meanwhile, here comes Daniel into the picture who can solve the riddle of the dream for the king. It presents an opportunity for Daniel to again distinguish himself. So verse 9, I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there stood before me a tree in the middle of the land, Its height was enormous, the tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visited to the ends of the earth, visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger, Coming down from heaven, he called out in a loud voice, Cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means. For none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me. But you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time. And his thoughts terrified him. And so the king said, 
Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals, and having nestling places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree of the Most High has issued against my Lord, the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like an ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. This is the word of the Lord for us today. And if you're kind of like, well, what happens next? Then read ahead, just not right now. Later this week, and then we'll look at what happens next, next Sunday as well. And so I think to begin with, the most helpful thing I could do is just kind of explain the dream. Because there was a lot in there, a whole lot of words, a lot of repetition. What is it that happened? Well, the dream is essentially this. There's a large tree, so large that it's visible all throughout the earth. And this tree is beautiful. Its leaves, its fruit, animals live underneath it, birds live within its branches, its Fruit provides food for everybody throughout the whole earth. There's an angel who appears and says the tree must be cut down. And so the tree is stripped of its branches, its fruit, all of that is scattered. All the animals have to leave from the tree. The tree is cut down. There's a stump left in the ground, and it's bound with iron and bronze. And then it kind of shifts perspectives from the tree to a person. It starts saying he gives it personification. And so it starts talking about a person that is going to be wet with the dew of heaven and live with the beasts of the earth and really develop a mind like the beasts of the earth. And this person will exist in that way for seven times, which could also be translated seven years. Seven years. Daniel explains the dream then to the king. That's what the dream said. Well, what does it mean? He explains it to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, you are that tree. Nebuchadnezzar is the tree. He's become great and strong and mighty and powerful, and he is going to be cut down for seven years. He will exist like a man living as a beast among the world. And it's really the the picture that we're given is that this self-exalted, all-powerful, really genius of a king. History knows a lot about Nebuchadnezzar because he did a lot of amazing things. This really high-standing man is going to be brought down to humiliation. That is what the dream says. 
And so it's really a statement of judgment. Nebuchadnezzar is going to go from this really important person. And it says in Genesis, in the creation account, that God called humans to rule over the animals. And so what the dream is showing is that it's going to get flipped around in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Instead of being a human who rules over the beasts, he's going to become one of the beasts. And really, the whole opportunity, why does this happen? Why does this dream come before him? Is to showcase the rule that God has over the kings and authorities that are in place. God is over them. And as they choose to ignore him, like Nebuchadnezzar has, they can be brought to judgment before him. And so Nebuchadnezzar probably thought he was untouchable, but the reality was he was vulnerable. And what did Daniel say at the very end? All of this told to the king for the purpose of repentance. Repent. Repent of your ways. Rather than practicing sin, Nebuchadnezzar should pursue righteousness. Rather than oppressing people, he should be merciful to people. The dream is a warning against the king for his sins and calling him to another way. This is how Eugene Peterson ends that whole section. Verse 27 in the message says, So king, take my advice. Make a clean break with your sins and start living for others. Quit your wicked life and look after the needs of the down and out. Then you will continue to have a good life. And so the point of the whole dream is to bring Nebuchadnezzar to a place of repentance. And it reminds me of another story in the Old Testament, the story of David who has an affair and then ultimately decides like, well, I'm going to try and cover up the affair by putting her husband in a compromising situation so he is killed and then I can have her as my own. That is what King David did. And it's interesting, Nathan comes to him and he tells him a story. And what he says at the end of the story is very similar to what Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar. And so let's just look at those seven verses of 2 Samuel 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There are two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, and it grew with him and his children. It shared his food, it drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took that ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for him, prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, this man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. What did Nebuchadnezzar, what was he told by Daniel as he's interpreting the dream for him? You are that tree. You are going to be brought down. What does Nathan say to David? You are the man. It's a statement of judgment, of condemnation, that your way is not working in the sight of the Lord. And I think what the picture that we're given by both David and Nebuchadnezzar is when you lead your life into a place of unrepentant sin, you are walking on the edge of an abyss. You are walking into 
destruction. You are bringing your life down to ruin and others along with you. And God will find a way to help you realize the folly of this path, even if it means you have to fall into the abyss to get there. And that is true for both of these men, both David and Nebuchadnezzar. And so what we see with Nebuchadnezzar is he is unhinged. He is a man of considerable power, but anybody who kind of defies his power, he just loses it, loses it, and says, well, let's just kill him. What happened in Daniel 2? He wanted to kill everybody, all of the people that worked in his court because they could not interpret his dream. What happened in Daniel 3? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, we will not bow to you. And he says, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to throw you into the furnace. And so we see this through Nebuchadnezzar, that he is so fixated on his, himself, his power, his authority, that anything that kind of goes against that has to be immediately rejected. And he just loses it as he focuses on that. And it reminds me of a, a comparison between scarcity and abundance. It's very clear to me that Nebuchadnezzar's focus on himself leads him to have a scarcity perspective. What do I mean by that? Well, I put it a, a little table together here to kind of illustrate that. A scarcity mindset says life is a competition. It focuses on self-promotion because it's all about itself. It micromanages others because they needed things to happen exactly like they want them to. Scarcity perspective says you are unwilling to share. There's no need to share. Everything needs to be for you. And why is that? Well, because there's never enough to go around. If there's never enough to go around, you have to hoard everything for yourself. That's all that there is. Now, oppositely of this would be an abundance perspective. An abundance perspective wants to give care to others, wants to collaborate with others. And with this, it focuses on others. Scarcity focuses on itself. Abundance focuses on others. It builds trust with others. It's always giving. And why is it always giving? Because there's more than enough to go around. Now, you can put two people in the exact same situation. A person with a scarcity perspective navigates it one way. A person with an abundance perspective navigates it in another. Now, reading through the book of Daniel, it's pretty clear. Nebuchadnezzar operates out of a scarcity perspective. He says, as he's focused on him, that anything that he needs, he should have. And anybody that kind of goes against what he needs and wants to see happen has to be rejected. He's got no place for other people unless they benefit him. Well, I think Daniel shows the opposite perspective. And there's one verse in this story in Daniel 4 that I think shows it just perfectly, his abundance perspective, and that is verse 19. Nebuchadnezzar tells Daniel the dream, and he says, interpret it for me. And then there's like a pause in the story. In verse 19, it says this, Daniel was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. Now, does this mean that Daniel didn't know the interpretation of the dream? Was he perplexed and confused and couldn't quite figure it out? No. No, that's not it at all. What happened here is that Daniel knew exactly the interpretation of the dream, and he knew how bad it was for Nebuchadnezzar, and he felt really terrible. 
He was kind of like a doctor who is going to walk into a meeting and have to tell somebody, you have six months left to live. A doctor who's a good doctor and who cares is terrified of that conversation. They don't want to have that conversation. That is what's happening here with Daniel. He cares for Nebuchadnezzar immensely. And this is no small point in the story. And it really is confounding because if you go back to Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar tried to kill Daniel. And you go back to Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar tried to kill Daniel's three best friends. And you go back even further than all of that. King Nebuchadnezzar goes into Jerusalem and takes out all of Daniel's family and friends and says, hey, you're coming with me. And over the course of Daniel's lifetime, Nebuchadnezzar attacks and overcomes Jerusalem several times. And so essentially, Nebuchadnezzar has ruined Daniel's life. Everything that Daniel had that was good on the surface in his life has been totally destroyed. Daniel has no reason, no reason at all to care about Nebuchadnezzar. And yet he does. A scarcity perspective would see the circumstance and see the dream and notice how bad it's going to be for the king and would say, ooh, wow, this is a pretty good opportunity for me to grab some power and maybe bring my people back to Jerusalem and raise up my friends to a higher office. Maybe I could become king. You know, this could work out really good for me. That's what a scarcity perspective would do. How can this benefit me? But an abundance perspective says, oh, man, this is a heavy thing that's going to come to my friend, King Nebuchadnezzar. He wants the king to repent, to turn from his ways, and to experience something better. And when I thought about this comparison between a scarcity and an abundance perspective, I actually thought of the television show Ted Lasso. Are there any Ted Lasso fans in the room? A few? Okay, so... I thought like most of you would probably not know what Ted Lasso is, but I'm going to tell the story anyway because it's a good TV show, okay? The picture behind me is of Ted Lasso who's on the left, and the comparison I'm making is with one of his assistant coaches, Nate, who's on the right. Ted Lasso is an American football coach who eventually gets hired to coach an English Premier Soccer League team. And he knows nothing about soccer. And so, as you can imagine, the show's a comedy starring Jason Sudeikis, who was on SNL and is pretty funny himself. And Ted Lasso, as a character, is hilarious. He's so funny, mostly because he has absolutely no idea how to coach soccer. But he knows how to coach people. And I think Ted lives in a world of abundance. Every day, he takes homemade biscuits to the owner of the team. And all throughout the show, we see this abundance kind of perspective from Ted happening over and over and over. He takes Nate, that assistant coach, from the equipment manager and makes him an assistant coach. He gives Nate a suit so that he can look professional at his professional job. He uh, hires somebody who has been terrible to him and gives him a second chance as a player on the team. He takes one of the players that everybody doesn't like and makes him a coach because he sees the potential in him as a coach. Ted is what I would say materially generous and emotionally generous. He's always encouraging 
the people around them, bringing them up to another level. And it starts to kind of pervade the whole organization, which just has a different air about it because of his presence within it in his abundance perspective. Everybody except Nate. Nate operates with a scarcity perspective. And the show portrays this as a father wound. He has a dad who's present, but always disappointed in him and always disapproving of what he's doing with his life. And so this gives Nate an intense drive to succeed. But the success that he experiences in life is never enough. He always wants more. He always feels like he's being overlooked. And so he's condescending to the players that he coaches. He's rude to Ted, who's the head coach, and always makes fun of him for not knowing how to coach soccer. He always feels like he's being slighted in some way, like he deserves better than what he's been given. And so when you have this kind of perspective, no matter what comes your way, you have to hoard it, but then it's never enough. You always need more. And so you might think this comparison and contrast between scarcity and abundance, you might be sitting there and thinking, okay, I can figure out where this pastor's going with this sermon. We need to live with more of an abundance perspective and less of a scarcity perspective. And I would think if, if that's your conclusion that you walk away with, that's not a bad one. That's, that's pretty good, right? Like you walk out of here, feel like, oh, I need to care about people more and see the, the pie is always getting bigger and invite other people into that and not be so focused on myself. And that would be a good conclusion. But I, I don't think that's the conclusion of the gospel. I think a scarcity or an abundance perspective is just merely an outcome of where you fixate your life, of where your life is pulled from. And that's where the gospel has something beautiful to say to us. We see with Nebuchadnezzar here, the outcome of his life, of his kind of internal drive, is going to be brought to bear by God. Everything that he's accomplished is going to be wiped out. And so this life of fixated on himself is ultimately going to be brought to ruin, to nothing. He's going to have nothing left. When your eyes are focused on yourself and you lead into the scarcity perspective, eventually there's nothing left because there's always less and less and less and eventually there's nothing. And so here's another way I would describe this. What you are bound to, you become. What you are bound to, you become. And I really take this from Romans 6. Paul talks about how we're always enslaved to something. We're always bound to something. But these things that we're bound to have outcomes. A life that is enslaved to sin leads to death. A life that is enslaved and bound to righteousness leads to holiness and life eternal with the Lord. And so what is Nebuchadnezzar bound to? Himself, his achievements, his accomplishments, his power, his authority. And what is the outcome of that? It's going to lead to his demise, right? The dream shows that very clearly. It reminds me uh, of a quote from the French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre. He says, when, he says, man is nothing other than what he makes of himself. That's the mindset of King Nebuchadnezzar. Man is nothing other than what he makes of himself. And he's made a lot of himself, and so his life is pretty important. At least that's what he thinks. And you might immediately disagree with that quote and say, oh, that's not true. There's something far better. But that is the driving notion of many people today. Many people agree with that wholeheartedly, that the only thing that matters in life is what you make of yourself. That is the ultimate goal in life. And so we see this. 
this desire to be fully free, who we are, what we feel like our desires are, and anything that kind of impedes that has to be pushed against. And so I think what we can see here through all of this is that there's really two more foundational ways to view life. One leads to a a scarcity perspective. The other leads to an abundance perspective. What are those two ways? The first is that we are isolated individuals, isolated individual people in a godless world. Isolated individual people in a godless world. And you could see how this would lead to a scarcity perspective because if we're isolated and we're individuals, we might as well make the best of what we have. And whenever we get something, we got to keep it to ourselves and hold on to it ourselves and reject anything that kind of gets in the way of us receiving it. But there's another way to see life, and that is this. We are created by God, and therefore, we're connected to God and each other. We're created by God, and therefore we're connected to God and each other. And you can see how this leads to an abundance perspective, that there's always more. Because if God is the giver of good gifts, and he cares immensely for you, and he promised to to provide, then you can give everything you have away to others, because there's nothing that you need to hold on to, because God will always provide more. Now the reality is, that among the people sitting in this room, almost all of you, if not all of you, would say, well, number two for me, right? Like, come on, this is kind of obvious. I believe in God. I believe he created me, and I believe that I'm meant to have a relationship with him. And so I'm obviously going to lead down an abundance perspective. And I think, yeah, that's, that's great. And I think I believe that too. But here's the thing. There's a lot of things that I believe that I don't always live. And so I can say, I believe in the Lord. He's the Lord of my life. I've given my life to him. But the the reality is also that I kind of like to fixate on myself, be focused on my success and my achievements and my accomplishments, look in on myself, less on the Lord. It's a lot easier to say I believe in something and then at the same time also kind of live like I'm an isolated individual in a godless world. It's pretty easy to function that way. And so I think when we get to that place, then we can kind of understand why is it that our society has so much anxiety and depression? And there's very real medical reasons for that, but there's also that we put this weight of responsibility of creating meaning and purpose all on ourselves. And it's a weight we were not meant to carry. We have not been created to make our own meaning. Our meaning has been given to us. God has given us a purpose. He's created us for a reason. And our lives are meant to find that out. Not on our own, but through his help. And we find that out by stepping into what he has made for us. And so I think rather than feeling like Daniel and we just automatically live with an abundance perspective is we actually need to repent like King Nebuchadnezzar. We need to repent. We need to say to the Lord, God, you know, I believe in you. And I acknowledge that you have provided for me, and yet so often I live for myself. I am focused on myself. And I feel the emptiness of that over and over and over. Would you help me to let go of my need to live my life for me and to instead live it for you? We need to pray that kind of prayer of repentance. And here's the amazing thing about our God and the amazing thing about this dream in Daniel 4 is God provides an opportunity 
to repent. If you have breath in your lungs, you have an opportunity to repent and come before the Lord. And God provided that same opportunity to King Nebuchadnezzar even in the dream. He's represented by a tree, right? The tree is cut down. But what remains? The stump and its roots, which are still alive. And they're actually even protected by God. They're bound with iron and bronze. And it's give, we're given this picture that God wants to allow the stump and the roots to remain, to allow for opportunity of new life to come forth from something that seemingly is dead. And how does this happen? Through repentance. Jesus said in Luke 15 that there is more joy in heaven from one sinner repenting than 99 righteous people who don't need to. We can come before the Lord and repent. And so I titled the sermon this morning, Bound and Free. And the meaning behind that is when we focus on our freedom as individuals to pursue our own lives, our own desires, when we look inside, just like I did, wanting to make a lot of money, and that was my sole desire in life, it leads to personal slavery. You're enslaved to yourself, and you have that weight, that burden on your own shoulders that you cannot carry. And eventually, life falls apart and feels empty and meaningless. But when you are bound to the Lord and give yourself to Him, you can experience freedom. Why? Because as Scripture says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And so the the whole point of this dream to Nebuchadnezzar, and I think for us too, is the Lord saying to us, come back to me. I am here for you. I am waiting with open arms, waiting to accept you and experience a life far grander than a life focused on yourself. Come back to me. That was the Lord's offer to Nebuchadnezzar. It's his offer to us as well. Come and be bound to me as your Savior. Taste the abundant life that I desire to give you. The truest freedom you can ever have comes from being bound to the Lord. As we transition into communion, I want to read a poem that I think illustrates this tension that we feel. It's by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote it in a prison cell in 1944 in Germany, uh, within about a year of when he was executed for defying Hitler. And what he writes about in this poem is the tension he feels between the accusations of the soldiers and the truth of what God says about him. And he feels that turmoil of, who am I really inside? And I think we often experience that, wanting to be bound to the Lord and yet so often enslaved to ourselves. We feel that tension internally, and I think this poem speaks to it very well. He writes, who am I? They say to me often, I step out of my cell, calm, serene, strong, like a lord from his castle. Who am I? They say to me often. I speak with my guards freely and cordially and clearly, as if I were giving orders. Who am I? They say to me also. I bear the days of misfortune temperately, smiling, proud, like one for whom victory is customary. Am I really what others say of me, or am I only what I myself know of me, restless, yearning, sick, like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath as if one were choking me by the throat, starving for colors, for flowers, for bird songs, thirsting for good words, for human companionship, trembling with rage over capriciousness and the smallest slight, plagued by waiting on great things. 
helplessly worried about friends at endless distance, too exhausted and empty to pray, to think, to work, faint and ready to bid everything farewell? Who am I? This one or that one? Am I then this one today and tomorrow another? Am I both at the same time? To people a hypocrite and to myself a contemptuous, sniveling weakling? Or is what remains in me akin to the defeated army that yields in disarray to a victory already won? Who am I? They mock me, these questions of mine. Whoever I am, you know me. I am yours, O God. Around the same time when Bonhoeffer was in prison, he wrote a letter to a friend, and he went on to describe how there was something better in life than self-knowledge, something better in life than binding yourself to your own desires. And what was that one thing? To be bound to the Lord. Something greater to be known by God and to know him far better than just knowing yourself. And so in this fellowship with our creator and brothers and sisters, we have an opportunity to step into a far more abundant life than what our culture says brings life to its fullest. And I invite us to step into that. And so the team's going to lead us in a few songs. We like to come to the communion table as an opportunity to respond, to recognize that what we have in this life comes not from ourselves, but from what Jesus has done for us. And so there's two tables up here in the front, and there's also a table in the back that has gluten-free available as well. And I just invite us to respond. The team's going to lead us in a few songs. I invite you to stand as we take some time to seek the Lord. I thought those last three songs were really a great way to summarize our morning of repenting and inviting his spirit to move in our midst, to draw us away from ourselves toward him and finding life in that way. I think Martin Luther had a great kind of summary statement of what I was trying to say or what I think Daniel 4 was trying to say to us. He said, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. And a Christian is a perfectly free, dutiful servant of all, subject to all. And I think those two are both true and can both be fully embraced, that we experience the freedom that God desires us to have by being bound to him that binding that brings us freedom. And so may the love of God, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you today, this week, during windstorms and rain. God bless you. Have a great week.